Welcome to Radioactive, the summer break edition. I'm Laura Jones. Tonight, we'll wrap our series with the YWCA of Utah as it closes out this year's 21-day challenge for racial equity and social justice. Liz Owens will share her thoughts on the challenge this year, as well as news of upcoming events with the Y, including a visit from Angela Davis in September. And as we approach Pioneer Day, we'll talk to folks with a decidedly non-mainstream view of our local culture this week, starting with author Blair Osler. Her new book is Queer Mormon Theology, An Introduction. eBay just wrapped up another edition of New Music Mondays. In keeping with that theme, I spoke with Tyler Harris, also known as Future Ex-Boyfriend, who sent Radioactive a new song. Hey, Tyler, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Not bad at all, and a better day because I get to hear a new single from Future Ex-Boyfriend. But before we hear it, tell us what gigs you got coming up because concerts are back. Yeah, um, yeah. locally we're going to be playing at uh, Kildy Court on the 29th with our buddies uh, Silver Cup and Bad Heather. And then um, in August we're going to go to the Oomsfest in Denver. Oomsfest? Really That's cool. Yeah. So where can people yeah. catch up with you online? We're pretty active on Instagram um, and then all the different streaming platforms, really. Okay. So We'll put a link in the show notes, but tell me about making music during COVID. Well, you know, I actually kind of enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> I just got to sit in my basement and record as much as I wanted. Um, didn't really have to worry about anything else except for recording. But, uh, but yeah, I'm actually very excited that shows are back now that we can play all these songs that I wrote. So. Well, help me introduce this new song, this new single from Future Ex-Boyfriend. What's it called? What's it about? Yeah, so this song is called Uh, U-H-H-H. Uh, and it's it's really about this last year. Um, I found myself disassociating a lot, just like not really believing that everything was going on that was going on. And so, um, and just kind of like living in a daze, which is what I say in the chorus, but uh Instead of naming it that, I felt like uh was a better uh, <laughs> better name, better feeling for it because that's just like how I felt. I can so. identify with that. Well, be the DJ. Uh, introduce the song for us. Yeah, this is Uh by Future Ex-Boyfriend. Hope you enjoy it. On KRCL 90.9. This is the Radioactive Summer Break on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. And for the last several weeks, we've been checking in on Mondays with the YWCA of Utah on its 21-day challenge for racial equity and social justice. Today is our last check-in with Liz Owens on the topic. She's the CEO of the nonprofit, which is dedicated to eliminating racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. Here's that conversation. You know, being that it's our second year, it's a little bit hard to tell. I feel like it was a, still a successful challenge, but we had fewer people participate. Um, and of course, this summer is different than last summer. And the kind of uh, energy and focus on race equity uh, in the past year, we've noticed as an organization, has sort of tapered. Um, it's still it's still in our community's mind. Um, however, there are less fewer people sort of reaching out and engaging in the work. And so we expected kind of a reduction in participation, and, and that's what we saw. But we still had really great participation, about 2,000 individuals, about 56 groups, 
uh, and about 200 Facebook group members. That's more folks than otherwise had you not done the challenge again. So congratulations. Can you give us some of the highlights from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that the definitely the five day I, I feel from at least our end that it adds some kind of room to breathe. Um, last, last year, again, it was just 21 straight days and it's a lot of information and some of the information can feel very heavy, if not all of it. And so having some kind of space to breathe, I think that's a good tempo. Um, and for, for me, last week was um, a, a real, or week three was a really, um, really good week. It ended with uh, critical race theory. And that was our most engaged uh, topic so far, our most engaged day so far. And we really tried to provide the information straightforward without any kind of value judgment and offer a couple of different options to learn more about that. And so um, that feels like a highlight that people are engaging in it and, and at least starting to do some, some of their own work and understanding what that what the controversy is about and what critical race theory is. You know, I think the value, well, another added value of the challenge is that it's deepened our ability to think critically apart from critical race theory. Because when you're getting your news from Twitter, from social media, from from TV news or cable comedy shows, there's not this sense of connection to the material or your community and how it is actually playing out in one's real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's kind of a good segue, too, if I if I may, to how we continue this work throughout the year. Last year, because we had such high engagement and, and um, a lot of folks were, were really energized, we didn't want to lose momentum. And so we just on the on the um, we just kind of hustled and, and thought, how can we respond to this momentum right now, not ha- having had anything planned beforehand? And what we did was um, we started a campaign called Learn More, Do More, which is a monthly kind of engagement um, that is in the sort of the style of the 21 day where you can learn more, but do more is what can you do in your community? What events are happening? What, or, what are organizations doing? And last year was our, you know, we were, we were building the plane as we flew it. And this year we, we have um, a more robust plan to how we, how we launch that and how we uh, facilitate it throughout the year. So I'm really excited to continue on the work of learning and engaging our community in the next year Um, leading up to the next 21-day challenge in 2022. Now, granted, there's a year to the next 21-day challenge, but the material is still available, including what I think was really valuable is those reflection tools. You know, uh, you Mm -hmm. created some digital downloads that people could use to kind of keep track of what they're doing on this subject. Yeah, so those are always available and all the information is always available. And I think what we also did this year, um, Lara, is for groups, because we have so many people participating as groups, we created a really comprehensive group toolkit that is, again, quite large in the style of the 21-day challenge. It links to a lot of resources online so that people can can have a starting place for their work, but then also do their own work. And, And so all of our... 21 day challenge is archived on our website and anybody can can do it within their their family, their friend group, their work group. They can run their own challenge using our archive as well as our um, or our group toolkits. So um, that's always useful. And, and of course, the, re- the reflection log remains available 
for any individual who wants to engage in their own work as well and help them, you know, the, the purpose is to help provide them a space to kind of lay down all of this material and, and help them process and unpack it and see what they're thinking. Now, I've been meaning to ask you this for the last couple of weeks, so I'm, I'm glad my brain is firing today. And that is Angela Davis. Please yeah. tell us all the details. Yeah. Yeah, Angela Davis um, on September 24th, Leader Luncheon uh, 2021. We will be having it in person, um, but we will also be having a hybrid option for those um, for whom either don't feel comfortable in person or can't be vaccinated. Um, and so we are super excited to, to welcome Angela and host her here. Uh, it is my first Leader Luncheon Last year, we, we did it, you know, we had to pivot and we did another event, which was great. Um, so it'll be my first leader luncheon and most of my leadership team. And we really want to uh, put our, our own mark on it. And I think bringing Angela Davis also, um, I hope, shows, uh, you know, where, who we are as an organization and where we're headed and what we're, we're really committed to, to, um, to our mission to eliminate racism and, and doing that work as an organization in Utah. Another thing that you've been involved with, and I understand from the logo I'm looking at online, it's happening all year long, is this food truck passport program. Tell me what's going on with that and how how folks can benefit the YWCA by participating. Yeah. So food truck, uh, is to, every year previously, it's been food truck face-off. So it was a one-day event that benefited um, a lot of your local nonprofits who serve who, who provide direct services to, to our community, particularly those who are most vulnerable and in need. Um, so that includes VOA and, um, and I believe... Um, Fourth Street Clinic? Uh, Fourth Street, yeah, and yours truly, YWCA. And so we all get together, participate in this. Because of COVID, we've, we've reimagined, reimagined it to a food truck pace passport. So instead of one day event, you can use the passport to visit food trucks throughout the year and get a discount. So we'll put links in the show notes to everything we talked about, but most importantly, the 21 day challenge folks can start right now, even though today is technically the last day of the 2021 challenge. It's an ongoing challenge in one's life. And I was hoping for some closing words of wisdom, Liz. I don't know if you want to frame it in a song of summer, perhaps, but whatever you'd like to leave folks with after this 21 days of deep soul searching, frankly, when it comes to racial equity and social justice. Well, today is day 21, and our theme for today is collective care, and collective care is really how we work together, how we take care of ourselves and each other. It's an extension of self-care. So I think um, what I'd like to leave everybody with is the idea that collective care encourages inclusivity and anti-racism, engaging in education and, um, and, and in the ways that your community is active and trying to meet the needs of the community is part of what I see as collective care. Um, and that is a part of taking care of yourself and taking care of each other. So um, I thank everybody who's participated and everybody who might participate on their own and, um, and engages in that, that collective community care. As for the Song of Summer, uh, Laura, I cheated and asked Sandra, since she's the, the music guru, um, and she said, Tank and the Bangas, friend Cole, I want to send it out to everyone in our community. You got it, Liz. Tank and the Bangas, friend goals, 
on KRCL 90.9 FM. Everybody wants somebody they could kick it with. At school, hanging where the weekend. The annual Sunstone Symposium is coming up from July 28th to August 1st. Sunstone will bring together traditional and non-traditional members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a truly independent fashion as exhibited by my next guest. Author Blair Osler, her new book is Queer Mormon Theology, an Introduction. It'll be the framework for a panel discussion at Sunstone on queerness and faithfulness within the LDS community. To find out more, we met up on Zoom. Here's that conversation. As you might imagine, um, I'm a queer Latter-day Saint. I'm a born and raised again kind of more, or sorry, born and raised in the church kind of Mormon. Uh, nine generations of Mormon pioneers flow through my veins. Oh, that you so. know that means it runs deep. It does. It runs deep. It runs culturally. It runs genetically. It's part of my family and identity. Um, I'm also a queer person. And I joke that if there is a queer gene, I have that gene. If there is a Mormon gene, I have that gene too. And so this birth, the, the book was birthed out of the idea that I don't feel like I should have to relinquish either of my identity labels, that we can find a way to reconcile these two seemingly oppositional identities and find ways of making them work together. Not just um, a pseudo reconciliation, but actual authentic expressions of both identities. You know, coincidentally, David Archuleta just was very public about his sexual preference. I don't know if you saw that story or... How, I did. how he posted about it, which was, hey, I shouldn't have to give up either one of these identities. Exactly. Yeah. And you're seeing this is a more common approach now for a lot of queer Latter-day Saints. Um, people are pushing back and saying, look, I don't have to give up one or both of these things. I can still exist authentically as I am. I mean, I'm someone who has been um, <laughs> been booed at pride parades for being Mormon. And I'm also someone who has uh, uh, been formally uh, disciplined for being a queer Latter-day Saint at church. So there are uh, people on both sides of the spectrum who do not want to see this reconciliation happen. But you're seeing more and more common for queer Latter-day Saints and queer Mormons just, no, nope, I'm both these things. And eventually all are going to have to deal with that. And we're all going to have to deal with it. Like, let me be me and you be exactly. you. And all of that come to come together. Are you hoping that's uh, an out an outcome of your book? Oh, absolutely. This book was definitely made with the hopes that one people would just read it. Like it's always <laughs> and and there's a big difference between buying a book and actually reading a book. And I'm like, oh, people are actually reading it. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, so reading the book internalizing these ideas, this this new way of approaching um, Mormon theology, and then raising your hand, saying something. Um, when someone says something in a setting that you're like, oh, you know what? I read that scripture queerly, and this is what I read, and this is what I think of that scripture. Um, I would love to eventually see the day when queer people are fully accepted authentically within uh, Latter-day Saint chapels. Will you break this book down chapter by chapter? And there is uh, some strategy behind this. Tell us how you organize the book. And then let's let's talk about one of the chapters. Absolutely. The first chapter really is just clarifying the three words in the title, <laughs> because a lot of people will find all three of those labels controversial to a certain degree. Um, 
I, I clarify what I mean when I'm talking about queer. I cl clarify what I'm talking about when I talk about Mormon, which all of a sudden now is also a controversial <laughs> label. And um, I clarify, what are we talking about when we talk about theology? So the first chapter really is just clarifying what the heck we're even going to be talking about in this book. Um, throughout the book, I go through the basic tenets of Mormonism, like the, the, the most fundamental principles, and demonstrate how these things are inherently queer. So I talk about God and how the concept of God is queer and how we might incorporate these ideas to be more inclusive. Um, I talk about Jesus Christ and the atonement and how the atonement is a very, very queer experience. Um, I talk about the family. I talk about eternal increase and eternal families and ceilings. And of course, anybody who knows me knows I'm going to be talking about polygamy and I'm going to be talking about how queer it is. And that's in there too. So it's really set up as a way to where um, you take the most basic things of Mormon theology. And I just walk through all these things and demonstrate this is why each one is queer or could be considered queer inclusive, depending on how you want to read it. Now, when folks write these kinds of books, I look at them as folks sharing their own experience or academics or theological scholars sharing what they are uncovering. Where do you sit in that spectrum? <laughs> That is an excellent question. I sit at the intersection of all those things. Um, this book is really interesting because it really does, it takes a non-binary approach to scholarship, to narrative, to memoirs, and it really encompasses a lot of these things together. Um, I have some feedback that said, oh, this model isn't going to be sustainable, Blair. You either have to write the academic book or you have to write the personal memoir. And I'm like, ooh, I, I can't pretend that academia is in purple is like is impersonal and I can't pretend that personal memoir isn't going to be academic it's both these things well at the same time you're exploding the notion of of you got to be queer or you got to be LDS you got to be um, on the LGBTQ plus spectrum or you've got to be a religious person you can't be both so you are blurring all those lines and saying wait a minute I get to choose Yes, absolutely. And it's just taking everything that you're saying and just kind of putting it on a spectrum and recognizing that the intersection of these spectrums, it's not individual silos that are separated by one another. It's, 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 a, it's a tapestry woven together. Well, we're coming into, you know, the holiday of the year in Utah, which would be Pioneer Day. So let's talk polygamy. Let's talk the family. Two things that you would think are in contradiction in the modern LDS uh, culture, but they're not. They're always intertwined. And what do you explore there in terms of queer Mormon theology? Well, of the utmost important in Mormon theology is this idea that families are eternal, families can be sealed together forever, and then you you all reside in celestial glory together, right? Um, but right now, it's the case that a lot of queer people are excluded from those uh, temple rituals and temple blessings and things like that because they are, uh, I should say, a practicing queer, whatever that means, because <laughs> you know how the terminology gets all weird when it comes to policy. But um, uh, I talk about how when we think about being sealed together as eternal families and what it means to exclude a pro portion of that, the type of psychological trauma that's happening and uh, the idea of being cut off from one's family for all eternity really could be considered a fate worse than death. So, which to me, regards, in the reading I, of a New Testament kind of Christianity, doesn't it doesn't work in my brain? 
Right. That there would be this eternal damnation and separation from your family if you accept as, you know, uh, a fact that you will be with each other in the eternities. Exactly. The the model we're working with right now in LDS policy is just simply not a sustainable model. More and more each day, you know, a lot of straight Latter-day Saints are asking, asking like, well, what about my queer loved one? I want them to be there with me too. And um, more and more each day, people are becoming sympathetic to the idea that I'll, I don't I don't want to have eternity without my queer loved ones. And therefore making the painful choice to leave the organized religion, perhaps nine generations deep in their family. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The serious and very real decisions are being made within family structures to try and figure out how to deal with this. So I present a few solutions and possibilities of how this might work. And, well, let's, um, let's hear one. Let's hear one. Okay. So I introduced the model, which has the most provocative title, but is really the tamest of all the chapters. And the title is Queer Polygamy. And so right off the bat, <laughs> people are going to be like, what the heck is she talking about? <laughs> but um, I introduced this idea called the queer polygamy model. As of now, within Latter-day Saint imagination and theology, to reach the highest degree of celestial glory, you have to be a practicing polygamist. Um, so I push back on that idea gently and find ways in which we can practice what um, Brigham Young called the spirit of polygamy. Brigham Young, back in the day, recognized that not everyone could practice or enter into plurality. But yet if they practice the spirit of polygamy in their heart, then um, they would be accepted into the highest degree of glory. And so I took that and I ran with it. I'm like, OK, what's the spirit of What's the spirit of polygamy? And spoiler, I'll just tell you right now, essentially, I label the spirit of polygamy as love of community and how we reach out to one another and why um, eternal ceilings aren't just about polygamous ceilings or even marital ceilings or anything like that. Eternal ceilings are about binding and connecting families together. And this extends outside the heteronuclear mononormative family structure. We're sealed to aunts and uncles. We're sealed to um, all sorts of people that extend um, in our network of family. And so the spirit of polygamy, I argue in the chapter, is the idea that as long as we're being sealed together in a network in a creative cooperative union as a broader, bigger family um, through there's lots of historical examples of this, like the law of adoption and things like that, that we can practice the spirit of polygamy, the love of community um, in our hearts. And it doesn't have to look like anything androcentric, patriarchal or with underage participants and all the all the all the things you read about in our history because we mortals we get hung up on sex and sexuality and you're saying that queer polygamy in the eternity so to speak is communal not sexual exactly that is exactly the thesis and not only that um it also argues that um we don't have to um necessarily impose our preferences onto other people in the queer polygamy model. You have your preferences, I have my preferences, but we can still work side by side with one another in um, achieving our goals. Then there's something that you get to, I don't want to give away the whole book, but I really got to talk to you about your morality beyond gender. The queer community as a large umbrella has been arguing this forever. Morality beyond gender, that who you love um, is your own business. And that yeah. your morality isn't tied up in that. Talk to me a bit about that. 
Yeah, so I basically took a scriptural model of basically how are we how are we looking at the morality of our relationships beyond the fact that, oh, this authoritarian said this thing and this is what morality is, you know, how are we constructing our moral framework? And um, in it, I go ahead and introduce a new model predicated on four ideas. And the ideas are all found in scriptural with scriptural references. It's one, love two, joy, three, life, and four, agency. So is this a loving relationship? Is this a joyful relationship? Is this relationship promoting life and flourishing? And number four, is the, are we respecting agency and consent of all participants? And so I use scriptures to riff off these very important Mormon ideas and to talk about, well, this is what our moral framework and the questions we should be asking about what relationships will look at like. So if you apply this framework, you could see that like a lot of monogamous heterosexual unions aren't really predicated on some of these ideas, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are very... Um, destructive ways of performing one's gender. Um, even if you're cisgender, you know, like if your masculinity calls you to be violent towards other people, well, that's not promoting the four tenets of Mormonism that we should be looking at. So maybe that should be what we look at when we talk about immoral expressions of gender, not necessarily if someone's taking hormones or not. You know, you said you've already been disciplined, so I'm not sure what your status is in, in the church, nor is it relevant. But I'm thinking of Natasha Helfer, the uh, Mormon sex therapist who was recently expelled from the LDS church. And I'm curious what you expect reaction to your take on queer Mormon theology to be either within the church community or in the cultural Mormon community. I know you're speaking at Sunstone. Yeah. Well, so I was... Uh, I'd love to give just a little background. Um, I uh, had my temple recommend taken away. Uh, this was, gosh, about eight years ago now for talking about these things. And this was before the brethren had came out and said anything about it's okay to disagree with leaders as long as you're respectful. And none of these statements existed back then. So I had nothing to defend myself, so to speak. So when I was speaking about these things, it was already seen as something um, uh, more threatening than I think it needed to be. And the funny thing is looking back now on the things I was saying, they were so tame and loving and just like, like what? you know, God loves queer people and, you know, we should love everyone. Like they were really the most tamest things ever. Um, but yeah, that was, that was what I um, got into trouble for was basically talking about it. Um, after that, it's, in weird way, it was very much the catalyst for my work. I thought, oh, you don't want me to talk about thing? Oh, I'm going to talk about the thing like a, a lot, a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're we're going to have this conversation. Okay. You can be here for it or not, but the conversation's happening. Um, and so that was around eight years ago. Um, as far as where the church is culturally today, I mean, I, I this is just my own subjective anecdotal experience church culture has changed significantly in the last eight years. And even from the last 10 years and 20 years and beyond, like we are looking at um, the church has openly denounced conversion therapy. They had their own clinics at BYU doing very abusive things to queer people. And now we have statements from the first presidency coming out. Oh, conversion therapy um, is causing suicide, depression, anxiety. We're going to stop doing that. Like that is a huge, amazing, great step. Little too late for a lot of people. 
but it's still a very good step. So moving forward culturally and what I'm doing and thinking and writing about right now, I honestly don't expect any kind of disciplinary backlash or things like that. I don't, I'm not a temple recommend kind of Mormon. I'm a, um, I'm an authentic non-binary Mormon. Like I go to church when it's safe for me. I don't go when it's not safe for me. I engage on my own terms and I participate on my own terms. Wow. How is the response to that? Because, you know, there's always been, in my mind, this you're all in, you're all out kind of mentality uh, in the LDS church. You can't just be a little bit Mormon. And so how do um, card-carrying Mormons respond to, to that, where you are choosing the terms of your relationship, not only with God, but with fellow spiritual seekers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at first, it was very, very difficult. Um, there isn't really a, a, a really easy middle way with um, Latter-day Saint culture. You're right. It's very much you're either in or you're out. You're a TBM Mormon or you're an ex-Mormon. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. There's a whole big broad range of Mormons and spectrums of ways in which to engage. Um, for me personally, in my journey, I've been very open about why I don't attend church. Like I, um, used to have panic attacks. I would have to leave church to have panic attacks in my car. And I got spiritual confirmation for myself, from my heavenly parents that Blair, you can't feel the spirit if you can't breathe. It's okay to leave. Wow. And so I very much have been open about my experiences, my personal witnesses and things like that. And for the most part, people have been pretty understanding. Um, of course, there are outliers who are like, you know, Blair's being deceived by Satan and things like that. <laughs> but for the most part, people have been very like, yeah, church isn't really that safe for queer bodies. And if you need to worship elsewhere, we're going to respect that. Um, so it's, it's, it's been tricky. The harder thing is just like with the actual cultural policies, the people are very, very accommodating for the most part, but the in or out narrative is very much a matter of like, how are my children going to be baptized and ordained? And what does that look like in a non-binary relationship with the church? I'm going to bring us back full circle to what you said at the beginning, that you are nine generations deep <laughs> yes. in uh, the LDS church. And you actually invoke the pioneer spirit in the closing of your book. So it sounds like you have come to a, a sense of peace or reconciliation with your family's heritage, and you take from it that which gives you hope. Absolutely. Well, and that to me has been very essential to my own personal growth and development and as a human being just for my own mental health. Um, I can't take my body and surgically remove this aspect or that aspect. It's all part of me. And um, at the end of the book, in the afterword, I talk about the um, cover of the book, which features a rainbow beehive, which um, I, was a collaborative design with me and um, Christian Harrison. He does amazing work. But I talk about the rainbow beehive as um, an unofficial coat of arms for queer Mormons, um, because the beehive very much has long-term historical roots within Mormonism. It, it's, it's seen everywhere in Utah. Um, um, and it's an important part of the pioneer spirit of industry of, you know, progressing even in the face of hardship. And then, of course, the rainbow, on the other hand, is just a prominent symbol of the LGBTQ community. And being able to combine those, it's not just, you know, a trendy take on queer Mormonism. For me, it's very much this is who I am. And I needed some like a visual representation of saying you can be both queer and Mormon. And here it is. 
Blair Osler, thank you so much for talking to us about your new book, Queer Mormon Theology and Introduction. I'm guessing there might be some more works to come from you. Where can people catch up with you and uh, check out your work? Absolutely. Um, you can check out my website, which is blairosler.com. Um, I spend way too much time on Facebook. So you can, of course, find me and friend me on Facebook. Um, you can email me, message me through either of those platforms. Um, the book is available on Amazon. It's available on paperback and Kindle right now. And we have an audiobook in the works. Blair Osler, author of the new book, Queer Mormon Theology, An Introduction. She'll take part in the Sunstone Symposium, which starts July 28th, under the theme of unprecedented Mormonism. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the symposium, as well as Blair Osler. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening to tonight's radioactive summer break. Released earlier this year, here's Dinosaur Jr.'s new one, I Ran Away, on KRCL 90.9.